One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome we in, everybody. Episode 313 of the podcast in the Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, November 2nd, 2020, people. And if I sound fired up, it is because we got another great weekend of college football, which is going to lead to a great episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast on Monday, which is going to lead into a great week of episodes, and I will explain why momentarily. First of all, Monday, we're going to stick with the college football heavy recap show and there is a lot to get into not only as it pertain to Saturday but also this coming Saturday so I'm going to open with the Clemson stuff they survive against Boston College that to me is not the interesting story but we find out after the game that Trevor Lawrence will not play against Notre Dame and that's where it gets interesting there's a lot of hysteria in the streets here I'll tell you why it's actually okay why it's all going to work out for Clemson and why frankly believe it or not in many ways, this is a actually a best-case scenario for Clemson and for the ACC. We will transition to, speaking of next week, uh, your boy Dan Mullins, it's some hot water. Don't know if you saw this. Dan Mullen went incredible Hulk on the entire Missouri team. Uh, and he is very possibly going to be in real hot water. Could he potentially miss that Georgia game? We will talk about that. We will transition to the Ohio State Buckeyes, which just steamrolled Penn State. And then what we'll do, we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll come back. We'll talk Michigan, who uh, obviously came off a disastrous loss. Uh, yeah, your boy gassed him up a little bit, maybe too much. Maybe they were listening to too much of the Aaron Torres pod last week because I loved them last week. They lose to Michigan State. We'll wrap with Texas A&M coming in as a surprise playoff contender and maybe even a little BYU-Cincinnati because I do think in a year where we're having trouble finding that fourth-best team, I think it's time we got to start talking Cincinnati BYU guys. So before we get started, want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a couple, a quick five stars. Give us a quick review. Let us know what you like. It really does help, help us move up those iTunes charts. I know it sounds silly, but it really does matter. Uh, also, make sure you're following on social media. At Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. That's where I post my pics. That's where I post my this. That's where I post my that. A lot of good stuff over on the Instagram page. Find me on Instagram at Aaron Torres Pod. Uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter is the new Twitter account. Finally, the YouTube channel, as I tell you, is blowing up. We're closing in on close to 900-plus subscribers. Uh, and make sure you're following there. It helps expand the show to a new audience, to people that frankly may not know who I am. Uh, but I appreciate everybody who has gone over to the YouTube page and supported us. And frankly, I'll just say this, guys, really quick. I know we want to get to the show, but I, again, appreciate... All of your support, everybody who downloads this show, shares with your friends, etc. October, 
We once again set a downloads record. It is the fourth time in the last six months that we have broken a previous downloads record. Uh, So you guys love it. You love what I'm doing. And the best part is this show is only going to get better because College Hoops is coming up, baby. And I know a lot of you love me even more on College Hoops than you do college football. And I think this week is the week that we'll really start to ramp up. Tuesday, my buddy, Rick Barnes, head coach, Tennessee, will join me to talk about the Tennessee Vols, and I think I will use that as a jumping-off point to really preview SEC basketball in general. Listen, if there's something that comes up during the day Monday, we'll still talk about it, but Monday, SEC basketball preview followed by Rick Barnes on top of whatever else comes up on Monday, so make sure that you're subscribed because that Tuesday episode with Rick Barnes will drop. I got a great guest lined up for next week as well in the college basketball space. Enough babbling. The point being, it is a great month for the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Thank you for the support in October, and we're only going to keep rolling into November. And with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into it. I'm yelling and screaming. I sound like a ghost or goblin. I don't even know. I hope everybody had a happy Halloween, by the way. Um, But I want to talk some college football. And as I said off the top, I think the biggest story in college football to me is Clemson. But usually when I do this Monday show, it's it's a bit of a recap of the previous weekend. But the reason that to me on this Monday, November 2nd, the biggest story in the sport is Clemson is not because they almost lost to Boston College. If it was just about that, I don't even know that I would talk about them. The reason that Clemson leads the show today, though, is kind of the combination of not only did they almost lose to Boston College, but after the game, Dabo Sweeney goes to the podium, and to his credit, and I think he does deserve some credit here, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to throw off Notre Dame. He says, hey, Trevor Lawrence, our star quarterback who tested positive for COVID last Wednesday, there was a possibility that he could be back Saturday, but you guys will not see him. So don't ask me any questions. It is not going to happen. Trevor Lawrence will not play next Saturday against Notre Dame. And I think everybody listening kind of knows the importance of that, right? Notre Dame is currently ranked number four in the country. They're 6-0. They are, in theory, the toughest game on Clemson's schedule throughout this season. And if there was ever a game that they were in jeopardy of losing with or without Trevor Lawrence, it would be Notre Dame. And so now we know that they will go to South Bend next weekend without Trevor Lawrence. And I'm going to tell you in a minute why it's actually not a big deal, but actually in a lot of ways, this actually worked out really well for Clemson. But before we get into it, I do want to talk a little bit about Saturday's game because it was it was kind of a surreal moment, right? Thursday night, we're all doing our thing. I was having dinner at my in-law's house, just chilling, trying to relax, uh, get away. My week was mostly done. I was ready for the weekend ahead. And you get this bombshell that, uh, that Trevor Lawrence has tested positive for COVID-19 and he will not be playing on Saturday against Boston College. And obviously, it's a big story, not only because he was the number one over, he will be the number one overall pick in the next draft, but because he was a guy that fought so hard for this season. You know that he's doing anything that he can to make sure to keep himself healthy and stay on the field. And instead, he's out and in in his place. And please forgive me because this is the first time I'm publicly announcing this name, but their star, Clemson star, five star freshman, DJ Uilagangale. And I'm trying my best, and he's got a complicated name, but we all have complicated names. So DJ Uilagangale, uh, Ui, 
Ui Langangale. Ui Langangale. Okay, sorry. Okay, let's get back on track, people. Just stop distracting me, DJ. So DJ Ui Langangale is playing. And frankly, the first part of that game largely went the way that I think most people kind of thought. Now, to Boston College's credit, Boston College is actually a really good team. They play really hard. Their coach is Jeff Halfley, who was the defensive coordinator at Ohio State last year. Young guy, dynamic guy. They've actually been a pretty good team throughout this season. And when I looked at this game, I thought they could keep things respectable against Clemson even before Trevor Lawrence was ruled out of this game. And so when he was ruled out, I said, I said on my picks on Saturday, I said, if you want to bet this game, bet the first half. I think Boston College will cover the first half spread. It was about 12, 12 and a half. Not only did they, sp- they cover the spread, they were up 28 to 13 in the first half. And just about everything that could go wrong for Clemson did. Obviously, if you watch the game, you know the deal. But they fall down early. Great touchdown catch by a Boston College receiver. Next possession, uh, Clemson is sco- uh, driving to score. They fumble on the one-yard line. It's returned 97 yards the other way for a touchdown. And then right before half, how about this? Joe Tessitore's son, Joe Tessitore is an ESPN announcer, calling the game. Joe Tessitore is calling the game. His son comes in for a trick play. They're lining up, I believe it was for a field goal, and he comes in from the side, gets under center, draws Clemson offsides to get Boston College a fresh set of downs. And next thing you know, one, Joe Tess is going crazy because it's his kid and he's actually handling it like a real professional. But the next play, Boston College scores, and it's 28-13 to going into the half. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there saying, oh my goodness, is Clemson actually going to lose this game? And to their credit, I I didn't think it was as dire as a lot of people made it out to be. Uh, I just referenced a minute ago the the scoop and score by Boston College that was taken 97 yards the other way. If you just take that play, flip it the other direction, instead of a fumble, Clemson scores. Instead, Boston College goes the other way for seven. You flip that score, all of a sudden, instead of uh, 28-13, it really should have been 21-20. And so I I don't know that even in that moment I was really that worried about Clemson, but they come out second half, they look really good. DJ Uilagangale was phenomenal, actually. Two passing touchdowns, a rushing touchdown, looked really comfortable, looked like what a five-star recruit looks like. Big, strong, athletic kid. He actually played baseball out here in California as well, and he has a monster cannon for an arm. And so I'm bringing all this up to say that Clemson kind of, did what they needed to do. And I want to give Boston College credit. I thought they played about as well as they could. But there's a reason that Clemson is number one in the country. They shut out uh, Boston College in the second half. And as I said, DJ Ui Lagangale, uh, two touchdown passes, one touchdown run, Clemson wins. And so you come out of that game saying, well, it didn't really go well for Clemson. But hey, look, they're at home. Trevor Lawrence could be back next weekend. Everything will be fine. And then all of a sudden, Dabo, who kind of out of nowhere just kind of drops this bombshell, but he comes out in the post-game press conference and says, Trevor Lawrence will not be available next Saturday at Notre Dame. 
And the reason being, I won't get too much into it, is essentially the ACC has a 10-day testing policy uh, where if you test positive, you have to be out for 10 days. And then on top of that, because of all the myocarditis scare of August and September, you also have to get a heart screening. And so in theory, Trevor Lawrence tested positive on Wednesday. In theory, he could have potentially played next Saturday. It would have been the 10th day that he was cleared, uh, but he wouldn't have been able to practice. I don't even know if he would have been able to travel with the team. And so essentially, you're trying to get him cleared the morning of. You're trying to get him a heart scan. And so Dabo Sweeney just said, this is ridiculous. He's not going to be playing against Notre Dame. DJ Uilagongale is our quarterback going forward. And so, of course, when that happened, the media doing what they do, they freaked out. And I know I'm part of the media, but I think I'm, I think I'm one of the more rational, cooler-headed people in the media most of the media freaked out. And what does it mean? And can Notre Dame pull the upset? And when I really sat back and thought about it, I thought, you know what? This is actually a best case scenario, certainly for the ACC. And I would argue it's actually a very good scenario, if not a best case scenario for Clemson. Let me go ahead and explain why. But before we do, let's start with the ACC. So first of all, with the ACC, and I think it's going to be a theme of this show. It's certainly been a theme of the last couple shows. We're having a really hard time finding a fourth team for the college football playoff. And I know it feels like the season just started, but we're, you know, basically at the halfway point in the SEC, uh, certainly past the halfway point in the ACC and the Big 12. And you're looking around the landscape, and there's three really obvious good teams, right? Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State. And when you start to try to figure out, okay, who's that fourth team? Well, obviously, it could be Notre Dame, who we'll get to in a second, but they got to beat Clemson at some point. But outside of them, I mean, we're, we're, we're not, we don't really have a lot of really strong candidates. Florida and Georgia both have one loss. One of them will have two losses by the end of this weekend. The other one will certainly, almost certainly, lose a second game in the SEC title game to Alabama, so that eliminates them. Maybe Texas A&M can run the table and go 9-1 and one and put themselves in the conversation. But the Big 12 is essentially out. Everybody has at least one loss. Uh, the Pac-12 is only going to play six or seven games. And it doesn't look like there's another team from the Big Ten that can truly compete for a playoff berth. I would argue Wisconsin's probably the second best team, but as we talked about on last week's episode, I don't know when Wisconsin's going to be able to come back. Nobody knows as I'm recording this if they're going to play next Saturday or even the following Saturday against Michigan. And so I bring all this up to say we're having a really hard time trying to find a fourth team. And so I think from the ACC's perspective, this is why it's a best-case scenario. Because if Notre Dame can pull off the upset on Saturday against Clemson, then you're looking at a scenario where they're going to be a comfortable favorite in every single game they play until the ACC championship game where they would obviously almost certainly face Clemson again. At that point, Trevor Lawrence would be healthy, he'd be able to play, and you'd think Clemson probably beats him on a neutral field. And so you have the potential now because Clemson is without Trevor Lawrence, that you have two 11-1 ACC teams at the end of the year. And I'm telling you, I think an 11-1 Notre Dame is going to have a stronger resume, especially with a win over Clemson, even without Trevor Lawrence. I think they're going to have a stronger resume than anybody in the Pac-12, anybody in the Big Ten except for Ohio State, anybody as a second team in the SEC, a second team... Uh, anywhere, really, for lack of a better term. 
And so I think it's a great situation for the ACC because it now opens up the pathway where Notre Dame becomes a, a college football playoff member. And remember, Notre Dame is in fact a member of the ACC this year. The ACC gets a check if Notre Dame gets a check this year, and it's great for the ACC. But here's why it's good for Clemson as well, and this is a huge point that nobody talks about. So first off, it's great for Clemson because I think they're essentially on a free roll. I think when you look at Clemson, if they lose on Saturday, I mean, yeah, they're probably supposed to lose on Saturday. They're going to Notre Dame. They don't have Trevor Lawrence, their star quarterback, the number one pick in the next NBA NFL draft, excuse me. By the way, a lot of their defense was beat up and out against uh, against Boston College on Saturday. And so, of course, you're supposed to lose. When you lose the number one pick in the draft and you're playing the toughest team on your schedule on the road with fans in the stands, I might add, you're supposed to lose that game. And so if they lose that game, they have the natural situation of, well, we didn't have Trevor Lawrence, what do you want us to do? And then as long as they come back and beat Notre Dame later, they'll be in the playoff. Certainly if they win the game, then it's great because, oh, by the way, if they have a win on the road against Notre Dame, that might be the most impressive win anybody has in college football this season. And if they get two wins over Notre Dame, I think they might have the inside track for the number one seed in the college football playoff. And I think that's huge because you look at the situation, it's, it's playing out a lot like last year, where if you remember, there were three teams that were clearly better than everybody else. Last year, it was LSU, Clemson, Ohio State. This year, it's Bama, Clemson, and Ohio State. And you really want to keep yourself out of that 2-3 game because it's going to be an either easier pass to the championship. I think if Clemson beats Notre Dame twice... They're in, in, in line to get the number one seat. But here is the real reason that this is a great situation for Clemson. Unless I'm misunderstanding how COVID protocols work, Trevor Lawrence will not have to take a single COVID test the rest of the year. And that sounds crazy. Like, you're like, what are you talking about? Well, think back to last week. Remember when I talked college hoops on Tuesday's episode, I talked the Orlando bubble in college basketball being blown up. One of the big reasons that the college basketball bubble was blown up was because of the fact that every conference has slightly different rules. And one of the rules in the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 is that when a player tests positive, he does not have to get retested for 90 full days. That is the policy in the ACC. That is the policy in the Big 12. That is the policy in the SEC. And unless something's changed since the summer, because I saw that policy you know, uh, in writing in the summer, or unless the college football playoff is going to have its own set of rules, Trevor Lawrence is never going to have to take a COVID test for the rest of his time playing college football. Because I'm not a math major here, but today's October, or, uh, when he tested positive, it was October 28th. You fast forward out 90 days, we're talking about January 28th. Don't think we'll be playing college football at that point, unless something crazy happens and we got bigger issues than just Trevor Lawrence's test. We got really big issues. College football season is going to be done. Trevor Lawrence, at the very least, will not have to test at all the rest of the ACC regular season. And unless the college football playoff has its own testing policies, he's not going to have to test again, period. And so you're almost in a perfect scenario if you're Notre Dame. You survived the BC game. If you lose to Notre Dame, I know they're a slight favorite according to Vegas, but they're supposed to lose. They don't have Trevor Lawrence. It's the number four team in the country. 
And if they win, it's great. But in the bigger picture, Trevor Lawrence is not going to have to take another COVID test the rest of his time playing college football. So that is the part that no one is talking about. And I think it is a great situation for Notre Dame, or for Clemson going into that Notre Dame game. I'll take it a step further. I would argue that Notre Dame has more to lose on Saturday than Clemson because if you can't beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence at home, by the way, I find it really hard to believe that you're going to beat them in a couple weeks on a neutral field in the ACC title game. So it's a fascinating case study, but I think this is a best-case scenario for Clemson as they move on without Trevor Lawrence, DJ Uilagangale. Say that name with me, Uilagangale. He is a starter at Notre Dame, and I don't think this is a bad situation for Clemson at all because I think if you have to trade a, 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 even a loss for never having Trevor Lawrence to test again, because would you rather have him test positive the week before Notre Dame or the week before Ohio State in the playoff? Because I'd rather have him test positive right now, and I think it's a great situation for Clemson. I would argue, actually, Notre Dame has more pressure on them going into that game. All right, let's transition really quick to another story. I don't think it's the most important story coming out of this weekend. I do think it's a huge story for what could potentially happen this coming weekend. Because in addition to Clemson-Notre Dame this coming weekend, the second big game is Georgia-Florida, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. (laughs) And so that's the big game. But something happened on Saturday that's putting Florida in major jeopardy. Something happened on Saturday that is putting Florida in major jeopardy for the Georgia game next week. And that's this. Don't know if you saw it, but there was a brawl on the field. There was a big fight, and I think it's fair to argue that at least in part, Dan Mullen, I don't want to say instigated it, but I think he helped escalate it. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I don't think he instigated it, but I do think he helped escalate it. And so I think... As I'm recording here Sunday evening, things can change. Don't get me wrong. Things are always subject to change. But I could see a scenario where depending on the circumstances, the SEC may not allow Dan Mullen to coach that game. And so let me get into it. Let me get into some of the details. And by the way, by the time you listen on Monday, we should get clarification on that. But as I record here Sunday night, it's important. It's an important topic to talk about. So the topic with Dan Mullen goes like this. Florida's playing Missouri. Missouri's on the road. Florida is coming back off this COVID, you know, Florida's coming off this COVID situation where if you remember, Dan Mullen wants the swamp full for the LSU game. Whoops. Florida has like 35 players test positive. Dan Mullen test positive. They haven't played in three weeks. And so they come back. They are beating the crap out of Missouri. You know, I know this because I bet Missouri, neither here nor there. It's okay. Please gamble responsibly. But I bet Missouri, they're getting their butts kicked. (laughs) And we're about to get to halftime. And Florida star quarterback Kyle Trask drops back in the pocket and gets hit hard. And it's a cheap shot. And I will defend Dan Mullen and I will defend Florida for saying it was a late hit. It was a cheap shot. It was unnecessary. And as the two teams are running to the locker room at halftime, tensions are obviously high. And in the middle of running to the locker room, Dan Mullen kind of starts to make his way over to the Missouri side of the field. 
And as he goes over there, his assistant coaches and players are like, holy crap, this guy's pissed. We got to pull him back. And so as they go to pull him back, obviously the team comes closer, Missouri comes closer, and an all-out brawl happens. You've seen the videos by now, guys swinging, guys punching. I still don't really get why guys would punch guys that are wearing helmets and pads, but you get the point. There was a lot of pushing and shoving. And this could have major implications on next week's Florida-Georgia game. First of all, three players were thrown out of the game. But you'd have to think as the SEC continues to look at the tape that more players on both sides will, will potentially have uh, be suspended for the upcoming game. Ironically, by the way, how about this? Florida's playing Georgia this coming week. Missouri has a bye. Then they play Georgia. So if anything, uh, Georgia might have been the big benefactor here because Georgia might have suspended players for Florida this week and then Missouri next week from the same brawl. But I do think players from Florida will be suspended. And I think there's a real conversation to be had about should Dan Mullen be suspended. Now, in defense of a Florida fan listening, and we have some, I get a Florida fan's perspective. A coach should always defend his player. I get it. You want your coach to stand up for his guys. Whether something dirty happens, something cheap happens, something physical happens, or if it's just something like the Big Ten canceling the season. It was cool to see Scott Frost go to bat for the Big Ten and for Nebraska. It was cool to see Jim Harbaugh, for all the crap he gets, go to bat for Michigan to play football. It was cool to see Ryan Day, Justin Fields, etc. We'll get to them in a minute. So I understand a Florida fan, like, of course our coach is going to defend our guy. But here's the issue. Dan Mullen, first of all, runs over, instigates this thing. Again, I'm not saying he started it, but it was kind of like throwing a match on, a, on, on gasoline, right? Dan Mullen, you know, the, the, the whole situation was kind of gasoline, and Dan Mullen was the match that lit it up. And you know me, I'm not the Mr. like suspend everybody, fire everybody, this is the worst thing ever. But what I would say is this, is that the SEC has very aggressively handed out fines and punishment all fall long for much less stuff. I didn't bother to look into every detail, but we know that a bunch of these schools have been fined and punished for uh, kind of a, a loose mask policy. I still remember Jeremy Pruitt on the sidelines looking like Little Red Riding Hood with his little mask on, um, you know, Jimbo Fisher, you know, there's been issues with masks. And then, of course, last week, Lane Kiffin got fined $25,000 for retweeting a tweet that was critical of SEC referees. Keep in mind, Lane Kiffin didn't criticize SEC referees. And on top of that, the SEC actually agreed with Lane Kiffin, and he still got fined $25,000. And so when I look at this situation, I think it's hard to argue that even if you want to defend Dan Mullen, that his actions weren't worse than what Lane Kiffin was. And oh, by the way, after the brawl gets broken up, he runs into the tunnel and then runs back out of the tunnel and gets the crowd fired up and starts waving and yelling and screaming. And so, first of all, I love Dan Mullen, the heel. We need more bad guys in college basketball. And I think Dan Mullen's just like, dude, I made it. I'm at Florida. I'm making $4 million a year. I'm here 10 more years. I'm going to retire. I'm living my best life. So I don't think he even cares. I love it. I hope he goes full Draymond Green, full heel turn, whatever. But on top of that, I think the SEC has a really tough decision to make. And I don't know what they'll do 
And off the top of my head, I don't know that there's a really good precedent for what happened, but I think the SEC has kind of a tough decision to make because you've basically set the tone that like, wait a second now, we've fined guys for not wearing masks properly. We've fined guys for criticizing the refs. This guy helped perpetuate a brawl. You got to punish him in some way. And so I think a big fine is certainly coming for Dan Mullen. And I think the SEC has to at least consider suspending him for one game, which would obviously be Florida this weekend, which would be a huge story. So obviously I'm recording here Sunday night. By the time you guys listen midday Monday, we will probably get some sort of resolution. But I do think it's worth looking at because I think it is a big story coming out of the weekend. All right, last little topic, and then I'll take a break. But I do want to talk about my Ohio State Buckeyes. And I'm calling them my Ohio State Buckeyes because, first of all, we're brothers in arms. I think I was fighting for Ohio State football more than a lot of people were publicly. Um, But Ohio State, Saturday night at Penn State, and they just absolutely kicked the crap out of Penn State. Final score was 38-25. to But if you watch the game, it wasn't even close to that final score. And so as I watched Ohio State, we're going to get into Ohio State. I just love this team. I love everything they're about. And I believe, I don't know if they're the favorite right now, right? Alabama looks really good. Clemson looks really good. But I'll tell you this. They got that look to them. Not just that they're good, but that they're hungry, that they want it, that they're coming for it, and that you better be ready because the Buckeyes are coming, baby. And so if you look at the big picture, I think you got to look at it from the 10,000-foot view. First of all, this was the biggest game, I would argue, on Ohio State's schedule in terms of a game that they could actually lose, right? The Michigan game is always going to be the biggest game, but it goes without saying, and we'll talk Jim Harbaugh after the break, Um, it goes without saying that Michigan is not on Ohio State's level. Penn State has definitely played Ohio State much tougher than Michigan. And in terms of the elite teams in the conference, Ohio State, when they were coached by Urban Meyer, they took some bad losses here and there. One year was at Iowa, one year was at Purdue. But in the big games, they're great. And so I bring that up because when I look at this scenario, I see... An Ohio State team who, while Michigan is their big rival, the Penn State game is probably the toughest game on their schedule. As I said, Penn State plays them really tough. They had to go on the road. It was at night. And while I get it's obviously not a very similar road situation because, of course, there's no fans in the stands other than close friends and family, um, I would also say that it was in theory, like if Ohio State was ever going to get tripped up on the schedule... Like, this kind of feels like the game. Don't think they're losing at home to Michigan. They don't play Wisconsin in the regular season if Wisconsin ever even plays a game again the rest of the year. Uh, They do play Indiana, who's good out of nowhere, but they get them at home. And so this was the game that you were like, okay, we're going to learn about Ohio State. We're going to learn how good they are. And whoa, buddy, do we see how good they are. As I said, the final score was 38-25. But really, that final score is pretty deceptive. First of all, they missed two field goals, which really pissed me off because I had money on Ohio State. They ended up covering, but missed two field goals, so they already should have had over 40. Remember, in Happy Valley against Penn State. Should have had over 40. Penn State, by the way, got a fluky field goal right before the half. Ohio State took a knee. They thought the clock ran out. Uh, One second left. Penn State gets dragged back out of the locker room to kick a field goal. 
So all of a sudden, it should have been 21-3 to at half. It's 21-6 to at half. Ohio State misses two field goals. And really, even one of the Penn State touchdowns was a little bit fluky. Uh, the kid, uh, what the heck was the kid's name? Uh, Dotson makes this unbelievable one-handed grab for a touchdown. It was incredible. It was maybe the best catch of the year. The kid from Ohio State had a great catch last year, last week. But I bring it up because the final score was not indicative of how good and how dominant Ohio State was. And when I look at it from both sides of the ball, first of all, the defense was excellent. I told you they'd give Penn State problems. They did Um, they completely shut down the Penn State running game. Penn State averaged 1.6 yards per carry over the course of the game. And actually, to the credit of Sean Clifford, I thought he did as well as he could, all things considered, considering that Ohio State's defensive line largely dominated Penn State's offensive line. Uh, There was one play where Jonathan Cooper, the senior, just shoved the, the offensive tackle into Sean Clifford basically for a sack. Uh, But Ohio State was dominant defensively, got to clean some things up in the passing game. But listen, Penn State was basically passing every down because Ohio State came out and put points up right away. They were up 14-0 before you could even blink. And that, to me, uh, was the story from Ohio State, is their offense is so good. So first of all, incredible balance in the run game. They lose J.K. Dobbins, who I was watching a little bit with the Ravens on Sunday afternoon. But J.K. Dobbins is gone. Master Teague is a monster, over 100 yards rushing. Uh, The kid Trey Sermon, who transferred from Oklahoma State, was excellent. And we got to talk Justin Fields, man. Justin Fields, as great as Trevor Lawrence is, Justin Fields is just a different cat, dude. And I'm not saying he's better than Trevor Lawrence or he's worse or let's fight over it. What I'm saying is Justin Fields is just incredible. Like, let's just appreciate the five, six, seven games we get left of Justin Fields at the college level. He finishes 28 of 34. 318 yards, four TDs passing. This kid is accurate. He's poised. He's uh, under control. He throws an incredible deep ball. Um, and I'll tell you this, man. I don't know who's going to win the Heisman, but if I've if anyone can get it in half a year, it's this guy because he has been incredible through two games. He's completing, if I'm not mistaken, I want to double check this. I want to make sure I'm right. I'm fact checking in real time. These are accurate stats. Through two games, he's completing 87% of his passes, 11 yards of completion, six touchdowns, zero interceptions. I think he's like, like if I had to vote based on what I saw for the Heisman, Justin Fields would win the Heisman based off these two games. Now, he's got a lot of games left. Trevor Lawrence will be back. Mac Jones has been awesome. But Justin Fields is just cut from a different cloth, dude. And so when I look at Ohio State, yes, there are things to clean up. But when I look at them, I think they're probably the most complete team, balanced team on both sides of the ball. But more than that is this. More than that is this. And that's that I think they have a hunger and I think they got a pit in their stomach that nobody else in college football has right now. And that's not disrespect to Clemson or Notre Dame or Alabama or anybody in the Pac-12. I think they got a fire in their stomach at Ohio State that nobody else has. Because when I watch them, this is what I see. I see a team that's still pissed off from losing last year's playoff game to Clemson in Phoenix. We talked about a few weeks ago all the crazy stuff that happened in that game. Ohio State believes they should have won, believes the refs were out to get them. But there's a reason that Ohio State fought for this season. There's a reason 
that Sean Wade, the cornerback, and Wyatt Davis, the offensive tackle, could have gone pro but came back to be part of this team. They came back to win a national championship, and I think they are hungry, and I think they got a fire in them, and I think they, this is a revenge tour type season for them. Ohio State is playing like we not only want to win, we want to tear your heart out. We want to leave no doubt. We want to let you know that we are the baddest team in college, in college football, and it's obviously no secret, right? This is why they fought so hard for the season. They believe they were robbed last year. They want another opportunity to put themselves on that stage at the college football level, and they're doing it right now. And they looked the part against Penn State. They looked the part against Nebraska. And you look at the schedule, there is nobody else on this schedule that can beat them uh, if they're playing their best and assuming there's no issues with COVID, all that stuff. But I look at Ohio State, and I just see a team that is hungry, that is angry. You know what they remind me of almost? They are the closest thing that we have now to like the 80s and 90s Miami Hurricanes. Because the thing with the Miami Hurricanes, right, they didn't just want to come and beat you. They want to embarrass you. They want to rip your heart out. They wanted to make you look bad on national TV. And that's what I see from Ohio State now. Again, not to take away from Clemson, but Clemson, um, frankly, Clemson half the time just looks bored. Um, Alabama is a machine. It's excellence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is what we expect. This is what we do. We move on to the next one. Ohio State is like, no, 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 no. We are not only going to beat you, we're going to embarrass you and enjoy every second of it. It's what I see from them. It reminds me, I'm not calling it apples to apples because there is no comparison to those 80s, 90s, even early 2000s Miami Hurricanes, but Ohio State is the closest thing we have now where they're like, we we not only want to beat you, we want to rip your hearts out. They play their best in their biggest games, and I believe they are on a revenge tour type season. They are ready to claim a national championship. All right. I think that's it for this portion of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Great show so far. Not going to lie, I'm fired up literally and figuratively. I'm just going crazy over here because I got so much to say. Uh, What we will do is this. Take a quick break. We will then come back, and I want to talk about three more topics. (laughs) As great as Ohio State was, uh, Michigan, yeah, not so much. Uh, We will talk about Michigan. We will talk about why, uh, yeah, I may have been wrong on Michigan after I, I hyped him up last week. And I want to talk a little bit about Texas A&M, which dominated Arkansas. A couple other news and notes from the weekend. Uh, just a quick thought on Kentucky. Um, and I do want to talk a little BYU-Cincinnati. Because I just talked about the four-team playoff. How are we going to find a fourth team? I think it's time to start talking about BYU and Cincinnati, which have dominated so far. I will be back here momentarily. All right, everybody, I am back, uh, and I do think this this kind of break in the middle of the show on these Mondays has gone really well. I just think, look, Monday, I'm obviously not going to have a guest. It doesn't really make sense. It's hard to get somebody on a Sunday night. Instead, there's so much to react to. You guys seem to enjoy these shows, but I also do think that break in the middle is nice. It just gives me a chance to kind of catch my breath, look over my notes, gives you guys a nice, easy spot to pause if you want to keep going. Uh, And as I said, I appreciate your guys' support. October was incredible, and we're going to keep this thing rolling. That's what we do here on the Aaron Torres pod. Uh, And so with that, let's get to some other storylines from the weekend. And I do want to start with Michigan. We just finished with Ohio State, so it's only appropriate that we talk about their former rival, who's not really their rival anymore, because let's be honest, they are not on the same level as Ohio State. But let's talk Michigan, and obviously it goes without saying um, that, you know, 
Sometimes on this show I get to take a victory lap, and other times I got to take a big fat L punch to the face because on last Monday's episode I spent so much time talking about Michigan, they crushed Minnesota, and I just said, look, I get that Harbaugh has struggled with Ohio State, but we got to give him credit. Just went on the road, crushed a top 25 team, and we don't even acknowledge it. Well, of course, they lost to rival Michigan State on Saturday. They fall to 1-1. One one. Michigan State was, of course, coming off a loss to Rutgers. And so now I have to uh, eat my, uh, whatever they call it, I have to eat crow because I was 100% wrong on Harbaugh as usual. And if we're being perfectly honest, I probably knew it wasn't going to go well for me when on Friday night, Minnesota, the team that I hyped up as maybe a really good team last week, um, you know, Minnesota lost to Maryland. And as soon as that happened, you kind of sit there and say, wait a second now. So if Minnesota just lost to Maryland, they gave up 45 points, I think, to Maryland. Uh, that probably doesn't bode well for Michigan being like this incredible juggernaut, right? And so obviously Michigan still is coming into Saturday and you say, okay, Minnesota might not be good, but Michigan isn't going to lose to Michigan State. Michigan State just lost to Rutgers. Everything's going to be fine. Harbaugh's going to survive the week. He beats the teams he's supposed to, uh, and we'll move on and he'll probably lose to Ohio State and whatever. Instead, it was the exact opposite. Michigan comes in as a 24 plus point favorite. uh, And of course they lose the game. Final score, 27-24. And I think when I look at this game for Michigan in the bigger picture, two things stand out as really problematic. And then I think in the bigger picture, Michigan fans kind of have to look themselves in the mirror and I think they have to kind of think about what they want out of this hardball era. And so in terms of the problematic stuff, I think the thing that would concern me if I was a Michigan fan was that essentially every problem that Michigan has ever had under Harbaugh came out during this Michigan State game. First of all, this has been a program that is sloppy, that is marred in penalties and mistakes, and that happened again on Saturday. They finished the game with 10 penalties, uh, a lot of pass interference stuff. Some of it maybe you want to blame on the refs. I'm not saying it was all the Michigan defensive backs, but a lot of penalties, 10 penalties, 86 yards, it's sloppy. The defensive backs are sloppy, right? This is always the issue when they play really good teams, when they play Ohio State, when they played Alabama in the bowl game. They can't get off the field because they can't stop the deep ball. And, and Michigan State, which had seven turnovers against Rutgers two weeks ago, throws for 323 yards passing. And then finally, to me, the thing that always stands out about Michigan that no one can figure out, Harbaugh just can't figure out this offense, right? And it's incredible because this is the guy that, one, discovered Andrew Luck when no one knew who Andrew Luck was as a high school player in Houston, brings him to Stanford, ends up as the number one pick in the draft. This is the guy that took a backup quarterback to USC as a 40-point underdog as the head coach at Stanford and upset USC when Pete Carroll was there. And he's the guy that took Colin Kaepernick, who nobody knew anything about, and turned him into a quarterback that nearly won a Super Bowl. And so the idea that Michigan still cannot figure out their offense in year six is just mind-boggling. It makes no sense. I don't get it. Michigan fans, I don't believe, get it. Uh, And certainly Harbaugh and his staff don't get it. And so when I watched that game on Saturday, it was just so incredible because if you look at the final stats, you wouldn't think that the offense was necessarily the problem. But Joe Milton, 32 of 51, 
he does throw for 300 yards, but they struggle to run the ball outside of Joe Milton himself, the quarterback, and they frankly struggle to pass the ball. He threw completed about right around 60% of his passes. And so to me, that's issue number one for Michigan. The same problems every single season popped up. Here's the bigger issue, though. The bigger issue is you lost to a bad Michigan State team, okay? And the thing about Harbaugh, the thing that people like myself who have generally defended Jim Harbaugh could always say is very simply, well, he doesn't beat Ohio State, but he beats the teams that he's supposed to. He doesn't always win the big bowl game, but he beats the teams that he's supposed to. And you could always say that, right? You look back to previous years. Yeah, you lost to Notre Dame a few years ago in the season opener, but you come back, you beat everybody supposed to, you lose to Ohio State. Last year, after they figured out the offense, new offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis, figure it out, get things rolling, beat the teams they're supposed to, lose to Ohio State, lose to Bama in the bowl game. This is really the first time, essentially, that you can say that in the regular season, Jim Harbaugh lost to a team that he has no business losing to. And I think that's got to be the frustrating part for Michigan fans. Yeah, not only lost to your rival, yeah, not only lost to your little brother, you lost to them when they're not even good. It's one thing when you lose to them in Harbaugh's first year when they end up making the college football playoff. But this year, this season specifically, with a first-year head coach, second game, they lose to Rutgers, and you still lose to them. And so I understand the frustration for Michigan fans. And unfortunately, I really hate to say it, but I do believe that Michigan fans have to look themselves in the mirror on this Monday and ask themselves a question. What do I want out of my football program? And I will say very quickly before I crush Harbaugh because that loss is inexcusable, I will say one thing in defense of Harbaugh, guys like me maybe overhyped him after the Minnesota win, but let's not forget this was not a vintage Michigan team. As a matter of fact, a big part of the reason I was so impressed with that win against Minnesota was the fact that this was not supposed to be a very good team. They were ranked 18th in the country going into that Minnesota game, and that's already half the college footballs played and lost a bunch of games. They lost their starting quarterback, Shea Patterson, off last year, three of their top four wide receivers, four offensive linemen, and a bunch of guys off their defense. They were picked to finish third in this division. Nobody thought this team was going to be this good, so I'll defend Harbaugh in that regard, but I do also understand a Michigan fan saying like, dude, even if we lost all those guys, this is not a game we're supposed to lose to. And so to me, I hate to say it, but we are in year six of the Harbaugh era, and I just think this is going to kind of be how it's going to be. You're going to be in a normal year when there's 12 regular season games, you're going to be an eight to nine win team at worst. In some years, you might be 10, 10 and two, maybe 11 and one. It's hard for me to see at this point him taking this program to that next level, putting them consistently in the playoff race. But I think they're going to be really good. And who knows, by the way, maybe Ohio State at some point, maybe when Justin Fields leaves, takes a step back. I don't know if that's going to happen. Ohio State still recruits at a different level than everyone in the Big Ten. But it's conceivable. And I do still think that Harbaugh is going to have good 10-11 win seasons but I do think that it's fair to say like this is kind of like what we're going to be. Some years we're going to be 9 and 3. Some years we're going to be 10 and 2, 11 and 1. We're probably not going to beat those elite of the elite of the elite. And I understand both sides of that argument if you're a Michigan fan. On the one hand, 
at some point, you do have to beat Ohio State, right? Like, for people who are young, we got a lot of people in their 20s that will listen to this show, maybe their early 30s, maybe, frankly, their teens. When I was coming up as a college football fan, Ohio State had a coach named John Cooper. Could not beat Michigan. Talented as hell. Every year was putting guys into the draft. Uh, Orlando Pace, number one pick in the draft. Sean Springs, a cornerback. Uh, um, what's, I'm blanking on the guy's name that works for ESPN now. Joey whatever, who's a, a, who was a wide receiver who now works at ESPN. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. But he couldn't beat Michigan. And eventually he was fired. And so if you're a Michigan fan that's like, dude, that's it. You can't, you, you can't beat Ohio State. Now you're losing to teams you shouldn't. I get that. I also think we have to consider the other side. And this is something that I talked about on this show after Ohio State beat Michigan again last season. And that was this. Not only might this be who Michigan is as a program, 8, 9, 10 wins, beat the teams you're supposed to, beat the Indianas most years, the Michigan States, the Illinois, the Purdue's, the Rutgers. Not only is that who Michigan is kind of right now, I hate to say it, Michigan fans, that's kind of who you've been most of your history. And Michigan fans don't like to hear this, but here's the bottom line. I, view, I used this stat last year, and people got mad at me for using it. Michigan, and you're going to be, your mind is going to be blown when you hear this. Michigan has won national championship since 1948. Now, I believe it's 11 overall, but they have won national championship since 1948, since basically World War II. My father-in-law was born in 1950, okay? 70 years old. He's seen one Michigan championship in his life. I've seen one Michigan championship in his life, in my life. And this is kind of who Michigan is. I understand the want to put them on in terms of brand name. They're up there with anybody. They're up there with Ohio State, Bama, LSU, Florida, whatever. But Miami's won five national championships in my life. In the, well, I guess Miami, the first one they won before I was born, right before I was born, whatever. Miami's won five national championships in the last 40 years. Michigan's won one. Florida's won multiple national championships. Florida State's won multiple national championships. Uh, LSU has won multiple national championships. On and on and on and on and on. And we want to put Michigan on a different tier than those programs, and I get it. But I'm just telling you, the history tells us that this is not who this program is, not in any of our lives. Now, shout out to you. If you're 75 years old, listen to this on podcast or YouTube, then shout out to you. You remember a time that we don't, Okay. But most of us in our lives, this is kind of who Michigan has been. And I still look at Michigan before Jim Harbaugh got there, and it's one of those classic, it's the, it's the conversation that no fan wants to have. It's the conversation of, we'll probably never get to the top, but we'll probably never bottom out either. And I think that's an important part of this conversation as well. For all the crap that Harbaugh gets, never forget, the seven years after Lloyd Carr retired were really bad for Michigan fans, okay? In the seven years between when Lloyd Carr got retired and when Jim Harbaugh got hired, Michigan had one 10-win season. Well, we're in year six of the Harbaugh era, and he's already had three. 
in the seven years after Harbaugh or after Lloyd Carr retired, Michigan had three losing seasons and two seasons where they went seven and six. Harbaugh has never been worse than eight and five. And in four of the five years, he's won nine games. And in three of the five years, he's won 10 games. And so I hate to be the bearer of bad news for Michigan fans. You're going to hate me and you're going to get mad when you listen to this and when you see the video and all that stuff. I'm just telling you, bottom line, end of the day, this is kind of who the program is. And if you want better for your program, I don't blame you. I don't know who's out there who can do it for you, who can bring you to that level, who can compete with Ryan Day. And I do still think, like, Michigan's still going to be good. I just don't know if they're ever going to get to that level. But I understand the frustration of Michigan fans today because it's one thing to lose to Ohio State. It's one thing to get beat by Bama in a playoff or in a bowl game, excuse me, it is quite another to lose to Michigan State under those circumstances. And so, like, I feel bad, right? I'm a fan, too. I get the frustration. This is just one where, like, when I come on this mic, I want to have a strong opinion, and there's an answer, and this is what you got to do, and this is... I just don't know that there is one for Michigan. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch going forward. All right, a couple quick topics before we get out of here. Um, Do want to talk about... One team that I felt like flew completely under the radar on Saturday, that's Texas A&M. Um, Texas A&M, right? Like, look, and I've, I, this is the theme of today's show. Big three, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. Maybe Notre Dame plays themselves into that conversation. But outside of those three, those are the three dudes this year, right? Those are the three teams you want to win a championship, you got to go through. And I don't think anybody's on that level. And I think there's a lot of good teams that aren't on that level. I don't think Georgia's on that level. I don't think that makes them a bad team. I just don't think they're a good team. I don't think Florida's on that level. Oklahoma, who all of a sudden is starting to play well, is not on that level. You know, Wisconsin, I don't think, is on that level. But a team that no one is talking about, that quietly, what was the old term? I think it was Lee Corso used to lose. They're just, they're just sneaking around the chicken coop. I think it's Texas A&M. Now, Texas A&M played on Saturday against Arkansas. It was Saturday night. It was going head-to-head with the Ohio State-Penn State game. Alabama's playing. Florida's picking fights with Missouri on another channel. So a lot of people miss this game. I think you can make the case that maybe outside of Ohio State, A&M was as impressive as anybody in college football on Saturday. They beat Arkansas 42-31. to but if you watch the game, it wasn't that close. They were up 42-17 to going into the fourth. Arkansas scores two touchdowns late, including one with 30 seconds left in the game to cover. Um, but A&M was dominant. And they were dominant in a way that I haven't seen very many teams be dominant, especially relative to the competition of Arkansas, right? Because say what you want about Arkansas, their defense has been phenomenal this year. And A&M just went to the line of scrimmage and just Beat the crap out of them. I haven't, like, like, it's been a long time since I've seen a team just physically dominate another one like that, but they just completely ran all over AM or all over Arkansas, excuse me. They finished with f- over five yards per carry. Kellen Mond is starting to evolve into the quarterback that we all thought he would be. For people who don't follow college football recruiting, Kellen Mond was a five star kid coming out of high school, ends up at AM. starts, I don't know if he started game one, I know it was against UCLA at the Rose Bowl right down the street from where I live, but uh, if he didn't start, he was thrown into the fire pretty quickly, and he's finally starting to look like that guy, he was phenomenal, 
And so as I look at A&M in the bigger picture, two things stand out to me. The first is that this is what you're paying Jimbo Fisher $75 million for, right? And if you remember back to, I guess it was the second week of the SEC, which would have been week five of college football, um, you know, I talked about this on this show. I talked about the fact that Jimbo Fisher's making $75 million as part of his contract, fully guaranteed, and at some point he had to deliver. Next week they beat Florida, beat Mississippi State, go into a bye week. But, like, this is kind of what you wanted to see when you hired Jimbo Fisher, stolen from Florida State, and paid him all this money. I think he is establishing his system. I think he's establishing the brand of football that he wants to play. And while I know it's not sexy like Ole Miss or Oklahoma or whatever, it's effective. Balance on offense, balance on defense. I believe they had, um, I think it was 26 passing attempts, 32 rushing attempts on the ground, physically dominate the the opponent, and that's exactly what they did. And by the way, that's not a knock on Arkansas. I think A&M is just trending in the right direction. Speaking of which, speaking of which, speaking of which, speaking of which, A&M is a team that we need to talk about as a dark horse playoff contender right now. And I'm not ready to like jump two feet in, but it goes back to what I said you know, 25 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago with Notre Dame. Is that Notre Dame's playing Clemson to position themselves for that fourth spot. But if Notre Dame loses this weekend, that fourth spot is completely up for grabs. I said it a minute ago. But either Georgia or Florida, one of the two is going to have two losses by the end of this weekend. If Alabama wins out, Everybody in the SEC will have two losses. The only team that has a chance to finish with one is Texas A&M. And if Alabama finishes undefeated and their only loss was at Alabama, that's a pretty good argument to make the case that you should be in the playoff. And so you look at their schedule. It can be done. They got five games left. I would say they're going to be very comfortable favorites in four of them. This weekend they play at South Carolina then at Tennessee, then Ole Miss at home, LSU at home, and at Auburn. South Carolina, I think they play hard. They're just not very good. Tennessee, I don't know what they are right now. We're going to learn a lot about them coming off a bye. Ole Miss, kind of know who they are. Score a lot of points, give up a lot of points. Uh, you just got to survive against Ole Miss, but, but A&M's playing really good defense right now. LSU's just a mess. Don't know what we're getting from them. And like, Playing at Auburn is, is going to be kind of tough. Like, say what you want about Auburn. They looked really good on Saturday against LSU. It is interesting, though, this year, A&M will play at Auburn the week after the Iron Bowl. Never forget that. Iron Bowl is played Thanksgiving. SEC is playing another week of games after that, and in some cases, two extra weeks of games. And so A&M actually gets Auburn after the Iron Bowl. If Auburn gets smoked by Alabama at Alabama, call me crazy. But I could see the scenario where they're flat for this game. If not, they what do they call it? The body blow effect where you're just beat up from playing a really good team. And so A&M's schedule really falls nicely for them. Now, they're going to need some help other places. The biggest thing they can root for, honestly, is for Clemson to win at Notre Dame this weekend. Because if Notre Dame loses this weekend, like I said a minute ago, they're probably not going to beat Clemson with Trevor Lawrence if they can't beat him without him. And then after that, you start looking around. Who else is A&M really going to be in competition with? Everybody in the SEC is going to have two losses. By the way, if Florida somehow gets to the SEC championship game, even if they lose to, to Bama, you can't argue that Florida, because they win their division, deserves a spot over A&M. A&M beat Florida. 
Pac-12 is playing five, six, seven games. I love the Pac-12, but that place is a mess. Uh, the Big Ten, like Wisconsin's probably the second best team, but how many games are they going to get in? Six, five, four, seven? Like, like it's not going to be a lot. And even then, they're probably going to lose to Ohio State. And so to me, all I'm saying is great win for Texas A&M, dominant win for Texas A&M, but um, I think the story really is that they are in the playoff conversation. A couple quick notes from the SEC, and then we'll get out of here. I do want to talk a little BYU-Cincinnati as well. I'm going long, so I'll be quick here. Two notes. One, Arkansas loses to A&M. I think it's interesting how quickly the narrative has changed on Arkansas, right? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I talked about it a lot two weeks ago. But, um, you know, this was a team that, first of all, they showed some real signs. They ran the ball better than they have all year. Rakeem Boyd's back, looking healthy, looking good. But two, beyond that, it's just amazing to me how quickly this narrative has changed. And I think Arkansas fans, more than anybody, are realistic. But you come into this game, you're hoping to keep it close. It isn't close. But relatively speaking to where we've been, Arkansas has come a long way. This was a team, never forget, that we were talking coming into the season, are they going to go 0-10? They're going to go 1-9? They're going to go 2-8? Well, they're 2-3 and right now, and they should have beat Auburn to be 3-2. and And so I think if you're an Arkansas fan, I know it's frustrating to lose to A&M, but I think there's a lot of optimism going into the second half of the year. Now, the schedule's really tough. Still got to play Florida. Still got to play Bama. But it is amazing how quickly Arkansas, the narrative has changed. They play at Tennessee this weekend, which is really interesting. Another note from the SEC, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but uh, Kentucky. So Kentucky loses to Georgia. Georgia's kind of an interesting story in their own right. They can't throw the ball. Can't throw the ball. Georgia can't throw the ball. You can't beat Alabama. You can't beat Clemson. You can't beat uh, Ohio State. Those are the teams Kirby Smart's paid a lot of money to beat. They're not going to beat them. I don't even know how they're going to do with Florida this weekend. I think a lot of the Florida stuff depends on if Dan Mullen is actually coaching that team this weekend. But as it pertains to Kentucky, I just want to give somebody a quick shout out, and that is Kentucky fans. Because Kentucky fans, over the last two, three, four weeks, um, have, I think really the last three, four, five years, honestly, have been really frustrated with the play calling surrounding their offensive coordinator, Eddie Grant. And I've said it a million times, I don't claim to be an expert on any one team, and one of my really good friends, Nick Roush, is like the Kentucky football guru, uh, and I lean on him a lot. But I only bring this up because Kentucky fans have been frustrated with the play calling of this guy, Eddie Grand, their offensive coordinator. And I watch him every week, and I think it's frustrating, and I've always wondered, you know, well, you know, is it the quarter? Do they have enough talent? Is it Mark Stoops? Is it this? Is it that? And maybe part of it is Mark Stoops, right? Maybe part of it is that he's putting a leash on his offensive coordinator. But the argument is that it's not dynamic enough, they're not developing wide receivers, they're not going downfield, they're trying to run the ball, they're trying to win every game, 17-14, get out of there with ugly wins, and they play. They, they basically play like 1940s football, like, they, like Penn State, three yards in a cloud of dust, Joe Paterno, uh, foggy glasses, like, like that's how Pe- Kentucky plays. They play phenomenal defense. And they hope that they force you into mistakes. They hope they can force turnovers. They hope they can run the ball down your throat. And they hope they can win that way. And so I get Kentucky fans' frustrations, right? And like a few weeks ago, I said, like, let's give Terry Wilson, the quarterback, some credit. But this week, you can't defend Kentucky's play calling and what they're doing offensively. And I understand Kentucky's frustration. 
And where it stems from, in my opinion, um, is is the play calling and is Eddie Grant. And, and what really frustrated me, and I am not a Kentucky fan, but what really frustrated me was late in the game, Kentucky is down two scores. Their defense has been phenomenal, by the way. Their defense has been excellent in this game. They're down two scores, and there's just absolutely zero urgency out of Kentucky, out of their quarterback, Joey Gatewood. And I don't blame the quarterback. It's his first career start, but they're down 14-3. to They need two scores to potentially win this game. They're walking up to the line of scrimmage. They're taking time. The quarterback's looking to the sideline. The sideline's looking back to him. Uh, they're running the ball. They're c- completing short passes where the receivers can't get out of bounds. And, I, and I'm sitting there. I'm not a Kentucky fan. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Get out of bounds. Keep the clock. You know, stop the clock. Whatever. And so for the first time, I just want to say, Kentucky fans, I feel your pain. I think that the staff did a good job last year with Lynn Bowden, the running, the wide receiver, excuse me, who was converted to quarterback after a bunch of injuries at the position. But like, I understand the frustration of Kentucky fans. Not that you lost to Georgia, not that you didn't score enough points. But that when you needed to score points, it was the same exact thing. Walk up to the line of scrimmage, hand the ball off, short passes. And again, I don't claim to be a guru, but at some point you got to throw the ball deep to keep the defense off balance. I know Mark Stoops said after the game that there were some plays called and there was miscommunication. I'm just saying, I feel you Kentucky fans. All right, last little topic, and I'm going to make it really, really quick. Um, I just want to give a shout out quickly to Cincinnati and BYU. Because, as I've said a thousand times at this point, um, we're gonna—it's gonna be a struggle to get to a fourth team in this playoff, right? And like, this is my argument every year. Every we gotta expand the playoff. No, we don't. We can't even find four good teams. Last year we had LSU, Clemson, and Ohio State, and then we threw Oklahoma in, and they got slaughtered. It was like forty-nine to fourteen at halftime, and the game was over by the middle of the first quarter. Okay, so that's one. But two. This year, again, for the thousandth time on this episode, it's going to be really hard to find a fourth team, and I'm not going to get into it again. What I am going to say, though, is if there's ever a year to consider a non-Power 5 team, this has to be the year because there's two really good candidates that I'd like to see get a shot. One is Cincinnati, and one is BYU. Maybe I'm a little biased on BYU uh, because I host Fox Sports Radio every Saturday night, and I'm on at midnight Eastern, 1 a.m. Eastern when BYU's playing. But they're really fun to watch. And they're really dynamic offensively. And if you look at the stats, they're really, 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 really good. Um, not saying they're Bama. Not saying the competition is great. But if you look at what BYU does, over 540 yards of total offense, they've played seven games, okay? And in six of them... They've scored 40-plus points. They also have a kid named Zach Wilson at quarterback who the NFL people are finally starting to say, this kid might be like a first-round draft pick. Like, everyone wants to compare, like, like I think Mac Jones is kind of getting that Joe Burrow love of, like, coming out of nowhere and doing that thing. Zach Wilson's pretty good. 2,100 yards passing, 19 touchdowns, two interceptions, 75% completion percentage. And he's getting some real buzzes in NFL quarterback. And I understand BYU hasn't played anybody. They're an independent. It's hard for them to schedule good teams, especially this year when I think they had three Pac-12 teams and a Big Ten team scheduled. All those teams canceled. 
no out-of-conference games. They return, but again, no out-of-conference games. But, like, I look at BYU, and I'm just saying, rather than see Notre Dame get into the playoff if they lose twice to Clemson, or Georgia get in as a two-loss team, or A&M get in as a two... Why can't we give BYU a shot? At least they'd be entertaining. At least it'd be different. At least it'd be unique. It's a conversation worth having. Same with Cincinnati, who just destroyed Memphis on Saturday. And Cincinnati's kind of the opposite. They play great defense. Luke Fickle coming from Ohio State, former defensive coordinator over there. They are phenomenal on defense. They're seventh in the country in scoring defense, but that's a little bit deceptive because of the six teams ranked ahead of them. Three of them have played one or two games. So they basically have a top five defense nationally. They're beating the brains out of everybody. And they actually play in a legitimately good conference. Now, the problem for them, the teams on their schedule are not as good as we expected. So they play Central Florida late in the year. Central Florida is not as good as we thought. And I get it, right? I get that a Texas A&M, a Notre Dame, a Georgia, a Florida is week to week playing tougher competition than these two teams. And I'm not saying it's a perfect, it'd be perfect and they deserve it and I'm going to fight, fight, fight to give them an opportunity. But I'm just saying if there's ever a year we've established there's three really good teams and nobody else, why not give Cincinnati a shot? Why not give BYU with an NFL quarterback a shot? Because I'm sitting here saying, damn, man. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying. I've seen what Georgia can do against Bama. I've seen what A&M can do against Bama. We'll find out if Notre Dame is really on the level of uh, if Notre Dame is really on the level of Clemson this week. I'm just saying, I think if either of them finishes undefeated, they at least deserve to be in the conversation, and we'll see what happens from there. All right, I think that's it for today's Aratora Sports Podcast. I have talked long enough, people. Uh, before we get out of here, I want to make sure that you are subscribed. If you're not subscribed. Now's a great time to do so, especially if you love college hoops. Great interviews coming up in the coming weeks. Tuesday's episode, Rick Barnes, Tennessee head coach, will join me, plus an SEC basketball preview. But if you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. And make sure you're following on social media. At Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. And make sure also find that YouTube page. It's really it's been fun. I've been basically posting clips from this show, posting interviews from this show. And if that's just a better way for you to consume this, make sure you're following there. That's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Tuesday with your boy Rick Barnes.